This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Fokotani by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. How's it going? It's going very well indeed. How's your week going so far? Well, it's going really well. Had an amazing weekend. Uh, took the family out uh, for dinner last night for their dad's Father's Day uh, and just had a really nice time, um, just, you know, time reflecting on how little time I've got left with our big kids before they run away and start their adult lives. And it's kind of a bit sad, really, but but it's kind of good too because they've grown up to be good citizens. So, yay. And how exciting. Was Father's Day? How was Father's Day for you? Uh, it was a bit challenging because, as you know, Dad's not very well in Sydney. So it's a, it's an interesting, challenging time. It was his birthday on Friday and that was a doubly interesting oh. time. So we'll get there. Thinking about your dad. Yes, so are we. And who are we introducing today? It is my great pleasure to introduce Liv Taylor-Peebles. Liv is the second keeper of Kamo Tairua, quarantine island in Dunedin that we've had the great pleasure of introducing. Um, so it is lovely to see you today, Liv. Thanks for joining us. No worries, Morena, to you both. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Liv. Liv, we've been asking people how their bubble life was and how their traffic light life was. I know both of those are starting to turn into history, but we're asking it anyway. How was your bubble life? My bubble life? Um, I think I was actually quite privileged. So I was um, sort of halfway through my master's in science communication at the time here at Otago. And um, I ended up going back down to Tiano for the first lockdown um, to stay with my partner at the time, his family. And um, we were very lucky because they had sort of a lifestyle block uh, that backed onto the Whitestone River. So lots of access to being outside and lots of beautiful views around us. So not a bad place to still be studying, even though things were a little bit stressful. That does sound like a nice place to be locked down. What were you studying? Um, so just finished up last year my master's in science communication. Um, so my thesis was called uh, When is Nature More Than a Sandwich? <laughs> um, so I was sort of looking at like how the inner worlds of human nature relationships are oriented in uh, New Zealand. So thinking about our intangible connections to nature and how they're sort of skewed um well we kind of skew that relationship towards the more tangible aspects the material aspects of our relationship and a cool title 
Oh, thank you. <laughs> so that's looking at, at seeing nature or relating to nature and, and more than just it being a resource. Yeah, so it's kind of looking at how, you know, that relationship is inherently holistic, um, but we do tend to kind of put a bit more value on the material aspects just because, you know, they're tangible, we can touch them, we can see them, we use them. Whereas the more uh, human narratives that we have with nature, so like our emotional and spiritual connections, kind of tend to fall to the wayside because for some reason they're not seen as important. Um, but yeah, it was an interesting time to be writing about those kinds of things, especially in lockdown, um, because I think that's when that side of our relationship with nature was really brought to the forefront. Um, a lot of people sort of, you know, didn't have the same access to being outside as they had before. So, yeah, it was quite, um, I guess, topical at the time. And people were walking around their own neighbourhood, getting much more of a sense of place, perhaps. Absolutely, yeah. Place attachment really, really falls into it as well um, because those, you know, the human stories that we tell about the world around us, they're kind of what amish us into the places that we live. Um, and I think lockdown sort of, you know, we, we became very much more aware of the places that we lived given that we couldn't leave them at the time. Did you do a straight thesis or did you do a, some sort of creative work as well? There was creative work involved. So that's one of the really cool things about uh, the program, uh, the science communication program at Otago is that creative component. So um, the stream that I was doing was science and society. So I put together an exhibition um, which was on with the um, help and support of the Dunedin Dream Brokerage and um, the International Science Festival. Um, and so I basically borrowed a store in the meridian and um filled it with plants so i built like a little forest and it was a kind of a walkthrough installation and made people take their shoes off and walk through the mud and then it kind of transitioned from native species into garden varieties that we're more familiar with today and it was um for me just kind of a way to get people more aware of um the nature that's kind of below our feet and below the city and those stories that have kind of been overlaid by all the um, the other stories of nature that we tell ourselves. So it was called Alti Porti Overlays. <laughs> um, and then right at the end, uh, I was inviting people to write letters to nature and sort of really explore for themselves their own personal narratives of connection and sort of see where that led them. I don't yeah. know if you know it, there's a great um, little nature walk at, on the Tahakopa estuary that it's got, um, and it was a, being bought by the community and um, it's, I presume it's never been logged, but maybe it has been logged. But the, um, all it's, it's got like bits where you have to like get down and crawl. Oh, wow. And, and bits, where, bits where there's a sort of like a pillow and it says lie here. And, and oh. look up and things. It really no. is. We 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 do tend to sort of like rush through it, rush through the forest, even if we're there to to appreciate the forest. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I'll have to check that one out next time I'm on the mainland for sure. Yeah. <laughs> mm, yeah, it really is. It's interesting. Like what you start to notice when you kind of slow down when you're in a place, and I guess it's in a sense it's like a, a pursuit of purposelessness. 
and and just seeing what's around you when you're not sort of trying to get from A to B. Mm. Pursuit of purposelessness. That's a great. That's a great motto for the week. I reckon. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take the first of your music tracks. Let's have a Trinity Roots, Homeland and Sea. Why this one? Uh, this one because it reminds me of um, growing up in Northland. So my family moved around a lot. I'm fairly trans-Tasman. Um, grew up in the North Island and I did high school in Melbourne. So my family's still over there. Um, but yeah, this song, it kind of just reminds me of like those real long summer nights up in the North. I don't know. It just it sounds like Pahutakawa flowers to me. So it's quite special.
communication that is a path with heart for sure not the not the path for everybody and what what brought you on that journey how did you end up there oh yeah good question um so when I when I first went to uni um I I was down in Invercargill and I started out at SIT doing a diploma in journalism um so telling stories is something I've always been really passionate about and really into so I thought yeah journalism's the way for me to go and I ended up doing a bit of work experience for the Southland Times and realized that I didn't like the kind of impersonal way that stories were told through that medium so you didn't get the chance to kind of really sit with the person or sit with the story and allow that narrative to just kind of blossom in the way it needed to um, so after that, I decided to do a, um, a bachelor's of environmental management and ended up working at um, Environment Southland, the regional council and the communications team. So I thought, yep, this is, this is the way for me to go. And then I realised that I just really didn't like being inside all the time and working in an office was not at all the path for me. Um, so, yeah, I ended up being a nature guide in Tiano uh, for about two and a half years. So I was working at the Glowworm Caves. I was working in Milford, just kind of telling the stories on the boat of the region and all the beautiful landscapes around us. And it had been kind of kicking around in the back of my head um, to combine those two things in a kind of a more, I guess, more solid way. And I'd been looking at the masters in science communication for quite some time. So yeah, I just decided to kind of give it a go. And um, 
yeah, it was really interesting. And what really drew me was that that ability to do a creative component as well, um, especially with the the kind of themes that I was looking at. You know, it's a really when you've got really big picture concepts like a the relationship with nature or climate change or sort of how humans are interacting with the world. Um, art is a really nice medium to kind of tell those stories. It allows for, you know, the weird noodly things that come out of our head to sort of be a bit more expressive and, you know, you're not stuck within these kind of very rigid parameters that um, I guess more traditional science um, kind of expects of you. Um, yeah, so that's sort of what got me there. And yeah, just just really enjoying the questions that I had to ask myself and, you know, looking at the ways that I needed to sort of tell that story. There's quite a quite an anti-science movement around at the moment um, that we've really seen through COVID and even in climate change denial, uh, all that kind of stuff. How are you dealing with all of that um, in your professional practice? Um, yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? And the way I see it is that um, you kind of have to allow that, you know, more than one worldview can exist and there's everyone has their own unique way of experiencing the world and looking at it. And for me, I think a lot of that anti-science and sort of anti-climate change stuff is coming from the fact that, um, you know, those those perspectives aren't being respected in a way. So it, it's people feeling like their stories of the world are being told um, are sort of they don't matter, I guess. And um, I think one example is, say, for example, the uh, like farming and, you know, we've, we've got a lot of issues with sort of resource management and that kind of thing at the moment. And there's a lot of pushback there because you're – you've got these people who are essentially being told that the way that they live their lives is no longer relevant and, you know, they've immediately got to change. So um, for me, it's about sort of making sure you understand the, where those people are coming from and it's it's about compassion and it's about, you know, again, looking at where the emotional and spiritual connections are for these people um, with the world. But Something else that's really interesting is with my research, I was looking into um, sort of words that we can use to describe the way we feel about how the world is changing. And I was drawing a lot on uh, the Australian philosopher uh, Glenn Albrecht. So he is, um, I think he describes himself as an eco-philosopher. And he was trying to come up with like a new vocabulary of words to describe how we feel about the Anthropocene. Uh, so things like eco-anxiety is one that's quite familiar, but one of his that I really liked was solastalgia. And it's um, a word to describe the existential dread that comes with um, watching home environments change. Mm. And so I think, a lot of the pushback for anti-science and anti-climate change is coming from the fact that we don't know how to describe how we're feeling about the way the world is at the moment. Um, so, yeah, kind of pursuing those sorts of avenues um, might be a way to kind of connect with everybody on it. And we're constantly told that everything that scientists thought in terms of timeframes and changes 
those are out the door now. That everything's mm-hmm. happening faster, everything's happening worse, everything's happening different. So the predictable nature of our lives has gone in that yeah. respect, and that creates an enormous amount of fear. People get up in the morning and they don't know what's going to happen. Yep, 100%. And when you're constantly surrounded by that sort of negative and like existential dread, you know, that that's what switches a lot of people off and they become very apathetic towards it because if it's, you know, this is the constant norm is this sense of the world is ending but there's nothing you can do about it because it's such a huge problem. I think that's a lot of where it comes from as well. And so for, it's breaking it down into bite size and sort of more manageable pieces. So instead of being like, oh, no, what are we going to do about the entire world? It's just like how can... If we start looking at it in terms of how can we make better the places that we live, our immediate scope of, you know, perspective, um, it's kind of making it smaller so that it's more manageable. Mm. Makes sense. How do we communicate that to children in a way that helps them to feel safe? Oh, good question. Um. I think, yeah, it's just really kind of, it's putting it, again, like place attachment, really working on, you know, connecting them with the places that they live, Um, which is interesting because we live in such a global society now and sort of that same sense of attachment to places is much less concreted, I guess. but yeah, it's I think it's a, a perspectives thing. So teaching them that, you know, we're not just something that lives on the environments that we live in. You know, we are part of those places as well. Like we are an ecological component of the world around us. You know, it's not just, you know, the the world is not just a stage for humans to play out their lives on. It's something that we are actually imprinted in as well. We should have Shakespeare change that opening line, all the world's a stage. Maybe it's not. <laughs> yeah, I let's disagree go, with him on that one, eh? <laughs> let's go back 500 years and change that line. I think so. We'll see how that changes our perspectives on nature. So what are you doing on the island? Oh, being a chicken mum, which is pretty fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I got my, I've got my first egg yesterday from the coop. Um, and that was very exciting, but also, <laughs> but my real job is, um, so I'm the keeper. Um, another way to describe that is the resident manager. So the Kamo Todor Quarantine Island Trust is who employs me. And we have, um, we kind of have this cool partnership with Doc where the island itself is public conservation land. Um, but the trust I work for is we own the buildings that are here and they've been here for quite some time. So there's a lodge which is able to be booked for accommodation. It's a bit like a big dock hut. Um, and so kind of the main component of my job is welcoming people to the Motu when they arrive, making sure the lodge is nice and clean. Um, also um, telling the stories of the island as well. The history is pretty amazing. Um, so Kamo Todua is the place to set the nets. So this was um, a stronghold for Kaitahu and the iwi that live in Otako. 
Um, and then once the Europeans arrived, they sort of started using it as a quarantine station, which is where it's got that second European name from. Um, so yeah, it's just, I, I see myself as a storyteller. I see that as a big component of what I do here, um, as well as just kind of general odd jobbies looking after things. Um, yeah, and I mean, I'm, I've just started. I'm, I'm pretty new, been here about two months. And yeah, it's, it's just a really incredible privilege. And I'm very grateful to have this opportunity, especially because um, it just really aligns with kind of my own personal values and the things that I've studied and the things that I've done. So yeah, it's a big mantle to take up, um, big role in the community as well. So I'm just kind of doing my best to make sure that I'm upholding it in the best way that I can. Are there lots of volunteers coming over and doing bird counts and planting trees and things? Yes, absolutely. So the Quarantine Island community is made up of um, volunteers, so lots of very dedicated people. Um, each month we have a welcome day. So it's the third, uh, the third weekend of each month. We sort of um, organise the boat transfers and that kind of thing, and people come over and, you know, can do a bit of mahi if they want, a bit of planting, a bit of gardening. Um, but the main thing is also just, you know, really connecting with the island and sort of having that time to slow down and walk around and, you know, enjoy the world for what it is. Um, so, yeah, this it's, it's a lot of volunteers and uh, it's just a lot of love and sort of, that's put into this place. Um, one of the really good examples is the Married Quarters building. So we have one of the only um, two-story wooden buildings left from the quarantine period um, here. Um, I think the other one's up north, but that has been a labour of love for the community over the years, uh, restoring it and sort of bringing it back and making it a really beautiful um, piece of history that you can still look at. Um, yeah, so it's a great pleasure of mine to be able to sort of represent that trust and, you know, just be the island's biggest fan, I guess. <laughs> Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, kia I hope you're all happy to stay beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. I really hope wherever you are and whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proven to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day. Who you are, the triumph of nature's heart, unique and here, making things better. Thank you. Now I know that for us all the last more than two and a half years have been very tricky and we've had to learn so much along the way. We've had to continue and to persevere despite enormous challenges. And for all of us, we are deserving of love and compassion, understanding, appreciation, and empathy, a sense of what we've all been through together. And what an incredible time it is to be alive, to have this shared experience all around the world. I know that for us all, we've had to learn so many new ways of doing, being, seen, feeling. And so much of this is a part of who we are, that we are so adaptable and that we can at any time rewrite our own story. 
we can at any time begin again we can at any time allow ourselves the opportunity to reframe and refresh recalibrate to see things in a new light to see ourselves in a new light and to offer those around us the opportunity to be seen and understood in new ways these are all the skills that we have as a species it's wonderful and of course being part of the show i'm constantly reminded of this i'm so grateful to sam the whole bone bubbles team review for having me thank you it's wonderful to hear these stories from people all around the world living and loving and learning sharing it's a real privilege it's a real pleasure thank you i know that we're all doing our best at all times and often the stories that we tell ourselves impact on how able we are to see this it's so important that we tell ourselves stories that buoy us up and uplift us enliven us awaken us to the gift of the life that we're living and yes we do have these trials and these tribulations we do have these difficulties that we have to navigate but when we do and as we do it's so important to really appreciate all the things we are so i really hope for you wherever you are whatever's happening around you you're able at this time to look back on the journey that you've made the course that you've navigated the ways that you have found to persevere and to be where you are now i hope you feel really proud i hope you have that sense of pohokiru your chest swelling with a sense of appreciation for where you are now i know that for all of us it's hard to really acknowledge the work that we've done we can acknowledge the work of others more easily sometimes but i hope that you do feel very proud and i hope that you can look forward to many more opportunities to grow and co-evolve with all life in an infinite web to develop more and more skills and to really enjoy it and i'll look forward to talking to you again soon thanks so much kakite you're listening to blowing bubbles we're talking with live taylor peebles live how's the living on the island going for you enjoy it eh it's um i get asked a lot if i get lonely um because it is just me but i i don't i really don't um i quite enjoy my own company and i've got my sheep to talk to and my chickens so maybe that makes me a little bit mad but <laughs> we have some good conversations let us know when they start talking back <laughs> exactly and um with summer coming up you know there's always a lot of people sort of kayaking over or coming over um, I've got a group coming over today to stay in the lodge, um, a school group. They're doing some stuff at the Marine Centre and then coming over in the evening. Um, so it is always quite busy and I, I find I'm getting, you know, there's not as much time to myself as you might think. Um, but, yeah, it's just I'm, I enjoy the fact that my job is basically a lot of pottering around my own home. Um, <laughs> so that's really lovely. <laughs> With quite a big garden. Quite a big garden, lots of mowing. <laughs> um, have you yeah, lots of challenges to solve as well. So, yeah, it's been good. Have you run out of anything or have you gotten used to not being able to get milk? 
Oh, well, there was one day that was quite dire. Um, I ran out of coffee and then realised that the packet I had was, in fact, beans instead of ground oh, no. coffee. So, whew, that was a bad day. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, the grocery shopping is a little more interesting um, when you've kind of got to pack everything into a boat. And, you know, when you do the thing and you're like, I'm taking all of the groceries at once, that's also a little bit more difficult, especially when there's a big hill to lug them up. But, um, yeah, I'm making friends with the wheelbarrow quite a bit. Because <laughs> the jetty is not right by the house. No, it's not. So there's probably a – it's a pretty it's a pretty good hill. Um, I'm getting fit, that's for sure. When the weather warms up, you will see us doing laps of the island, swimming. Oh, really? It's, it's our favourite – it's the best water in the harbour is, is doing the laps of – the island or the doing the figure eight or on, on a good day the triple figure eight around all the islands oh very nice yeah i went so, for a kayak around one day um when it was low tide and that was quite nice because there's like this little kind of um channel that's been cut by the tide around the island right close to the island yeah, yeah. at low so tide you have to stick re- you weirdly have to stick very close to the island to get around at low tide you do, and I was just kind of sitting in the kayak and it was like being in a little conveyor belt just sort of taking me around and then I got to Nichols Passage and was like, oh, better start paddling now. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it's it's really nice. It's, again, just sort of you have to each day is um, you've really got to slow down and just kind of, you know, it's not like I can get anywhere just because I want to. It's all about what the weather's up to. It's about what the tides are doing. Um, so it's been a really nice opportunity to slow down and just kind of live life at an island pace. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you responsible for doing things like developing the tracks or is that the the community's doing that? Um, that's so a little bit of the community, a little bit of Doc. Um, I guess my job is kind of keeping an eye on things and if stuff like that needs done, then you know, letting people know and then we work it out as a community who's going to do what. Um, yeah, so I think my main thing at the moment is um, just with the background that I have is I'm looking to um, sort of communicate better with the public about, you know, what's on the island, what the what the trust does, you know, what's, what is here and um, working out ways that we can sort of tell our stories better as well. Um, so I'm looking into getting a, a Facebook page set up for the island um, because obviously digital communication has become much more of a, an avenue for storytelling, especially with the pandemic. And, um, yeah, so things like that and just sort of getting our messages out there and what I a think, wonderful place this is. <laughs> I think there's more of a story to be told about the fact you're sitting in the middle of a volcano. Oh, right. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) And the thing is, you know, one of the other names for um, so Kamo Todua and also Rakiriri, um, Goat Island, is the halfway islands. And because if you kind of get to the top of the hill here and you look around in that 360 view, you can see that we are in the middle of a volcano and the halfway islands because um, this is pretty much the halfway point between – the top of the harbour and the, the lower harbour um, and like Nichols Passage is sort of where that vent was where all the lava was flowing down to form the islands and, and to form the harbour as well. 
thankfully very extinct, which is nice. <laughs> but there's some cool um, rock formations. I think the coolest one is a totally unheralded one, which is there's sort of like an apple, a called out apple on not on the island, but on the on level where you can probably see it out of your window. Yeah, I drive. I've, yeah, I've boated past it quite a few times, and um, I know what you mean. It really does look like a big apple, doesn't it? <laughs> there's always these wee shags sitting on top of it. And it looks like it's always about to sort of fall in, but oh, it's quite remarkable. And there's also these, um, again, at low tide, if you're sort of meandering around, lots of really cool basalt columns sort of underneath um, all the the dirt and stuff here. So, yeah, it's just, it's just such a cool place. There's so many interesting things to look at. Let's take the second of your music tracks. Let's have – I can't read that. I can't read my own writing. Oh, yes, I can – King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, Persistence. Why that one, other than having the coolest band name ever? <laughs> um, so this one, because um, at the start of this year, I got to go home to Melbourne for about six weeks, which was really nice. Um, it had been kind of the first time I'd been home since before the pandemic, so it was nice to spend a good chunk of time with um, the family. And this is a song that my sister showed me, and I just really liked it. And so, yeah, I think everyone should like it.
if you think about the kids that come through there and their openness and willingness to learn, is there anything you would say to science teachers or, or school teachers about their practice that would help you working with the kids and yours? Ooh. What would you change in the education space? I guess that's my question. Yeah, good, good point. Um, so obviously there's been some really nice changes with the curriculum uh, recently towards sort of a focus on um, the history of Aotearoa and telling those stories much better. Um, so I think that is, that's quite exciting. I think that's something that's needed to happen. Um, and, you know, the journey that I've been on with my own kind of practice in science is realising that the rigidity of, um, I guess, science as we know it as an institution and a method of learning about the world uh, is not the only way to look at it. So particularly with, say, um, I guess, more traditional worldviews like te o Māori, is uh, there's a lot of observational science that goes on and realising that that has a lot of value and kind of working out how Western and traditional sciences can actually work together um, to produce like a much more holistic view of how we look at the world. Um, so, yeah, I guess for me it's, it's kind of how do we how do we incorporate emotional and spiritual values of the world into science? Because they do have a place there. Um, but as it stands, um, it's a bit of a grey area at the moment because it's hard to put those kind of noodly things into, you know, very, very structured and, and rigid ways of, um, I guess, doing science. Um, so, yeah, it's that's why I kind of really like to promote you know, like um, how art can be used to look at those things as well, because art is something we understand. Art is something that we use to tell emotional stories. And, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of value in kind of seeing how art can be used to interpret science. We've got, um, as adults, like, and I know even in my own parenting that we have these habits of demonising th things from nature that we don't like and we pass those issues on to our children, like cockroaches, spiders, flies, you know, we, we um, and even like very happy little pigs who run around in the garden, you know, we use calling someone a pig as an insult mm. at the demonising this beautiful creature. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like how, how do we move away from that, do you think? Because that's a real, I'm, I'm involved in a little project with that at the moment, and I'm spend a lot of time thinking about it mm -hmm. how do we move away from demonizing those things in nature we don't like and therefore passing that on to our children yeah I think it's um so I really like words I think words have a lot of power and a lot of magic and um maybe one of the things we're not very good at is realizing um sort of what the power is behind the things that we say um, a really good example is if you look at the way that New Zealand has done conservation work. Um, so we, for a long time, to use your words, demonising, we were, you know, it was a war on weeds, it was a war on pests, and it's the way that you describe stuff that kind of creates that sense of us versus them, you know. Um, and I think it's realising that 
um, there's, a, there's a whole story behind that and, you know, so the reason that, say, stoats and possums and that kind of thing are seen as bad um, is because they've, they've altered the ecology of um, Aotearoa, but also, you know, the reasons why they are there is because they were part of that narrative uh, the Europeans were bringing with them, which was, you know, wanting a sense of home, wanting a sense of um, as a way to produce industry. Um, so I think it's just, yeah, taking a more holistic approach and saying, you know, this is why it is now, but that's not always what it has been. Um, and, yeah, I think another part of that is just realising, again, that the world is not necessarily there for human benefit, you know. So just because humans have a certain way of um, wanting things to be convenient doesn't necessarily mean that that's the full value of something. Um, and realising that everything, you know, every living, breathing thing sort of has its own its own agency and inherent worth outside of the values that we give it with human narratives. So how do we teach kids that things are good? Um, well, the thing is, like, you know, kids, kids learn from us how to look at the world. Um, so it's about sort of making sure that the things, the stories that we tell you, them and the way that we communicate is, I guess, the way that we want them to see the world. And kids... I don't know, one of my favourite things is just letting kids tell you stories. So you never know where their brain goes. <laughs> it's so much fun. Like um, when I was studying, I was working as a, a casual communicator at the museum here. And one of my favourite parts of that job was in the in the school holidays and we'd have makerspace. So we just like set up a bunch of tables up in the atrium and there'd be like colouring in and crafts and that kind of thing. And what I always found really interesting is that kids would sort of come up to you and be like, oh, like, you know, how do I, how do I put this together? What colour do I need to draw this? Like, you know, that kind of thing. And they, they were always looking for the structure. And you're like, no, you can like, just do whatever you want. That's the thing. So there was that side of it. And then there was the side of it where kids would be like, oh, can I show you my picture? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And, um, I'd be like, oh, you know, why have you decided to paint your astronaut blue? Like, what's he up to? And you'd just get these amazing stories and the justifications they'd use. And it's just, I think a lot of it is not us teaching them, but also understanding what it is that we can learn from the way that they still see the world. And again, it's that kind of compassion and just, um, yeah, letting down your own barriers and, understanding where your own kind of um, limitations are as well in those spaces. I'm going to interrupt and come in with the questions to end the show because we've not got very much time, so we're going to have to wriggle through them. Liv, what is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? In the last couple of years? Um, I would say probably getting my master's done through a, a global pandemic. That was pretty <laughs> wild. wouldn't recommend it. Um, but also, you know, I feel like I've really landed on my feet with this mahi. It's just I have a job that aligns so well with the things I've always wanted. And I think that's really special and not something to, you know, sniff at. As I'm very lucky in that respect. So that for me is probably my biggest success. So we are writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. 
So you are in that team. What's your superpower? My superpower? Hopefully, I think it's just that um, I, I, I guess I've got a bit of um, relentless optimism towards <laughs> the way that the world is. And, you know, for me, it's about connecting with anyone on any level and, you know, putting aside the kind of we tell ourselves stories about who we are and what we are in the world. And I think when you put all of that aside, you kind of realise that we are all just people. We all want the same things. And so, yeah, my superpower is just kind of being able to connect with anyone. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? I think so. Perhaps more on the quiet side. Um, background activism. You know, mine is... Yeah, looking at the way we're looking at the narratives we tell in the world and sort of how do we change them or how do we guide them towards more, I guess, compassionate and emotional uh, waters. So what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? My chickens, because they scream <laughs> at me if I'm not. <laughs> um, what gets me out of bed in the morning? It's just, you know, I want... I grew up pretty urban a lot of the time. Um, so moving from, I guess, Northland to Melbourne, that was, well, I, there was a few other places in the middle. But, yeah, just being in big city environments and not really understanding why they didn't quite sit well with me. And then coming back to New Zealand after, you know, being in Melbourne and then I went overseas for a bit and I was in London. And then coming back here and just kind of the sense of being able to breathe again, um, being surrounded by, you know, all that New Zealand is. Um, so what gets me out of bed is just sort of I want to know how I can give other people that experience as well and that kind of feels like where my mahi sits is telling those stories. So what is the biggest challenge or opportunity that you're looking forward to in the next year or so? Um just seeing where I can I can take um, the opportunities that I've been given and how I can connect with the people in in the Dunedin community um, you know it's a really special place that we have here it's a and the job I have is just such a beautiful opportunity to sort of keep telling those stories um, and it will be a challenge also you know I'm learning so much about things I don't know so learning about, you know, livestock, I'm learning about how to read tides and drive a boat and, I mean, it's stuff I've kind of done before, but, you know, that being an everyday thing is pretty mad. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, just just really making the most of the beautiful opportunities that I've been given. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Yeah. Take your shoes off and go for a walk outside. And, you know, don't expect anything from it. Just enjoy it. <laughs> just see where it takes you. Thank you for that. Moira. Liv, thank you for this commitment that you've made to communicating science. It is a beautiful thing to be in a position where you're helping people to grow their awareness and grow their connections to our natural world. Um, and in particular, the work that you're doing with children, because yeah, without without our children being hopeful about a future, we don't really have much of one. 
So mm-hmm. there you are being the hope, and I appreciate that. Thank you very much for joining us today, and keep up the great work. Oh, thank you for the opportunity, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Here I am. Is anyone about? I'm down beside the plug hole and I can't get out. I've been here an hour and a half. Can anybody help a little spider in the bath? You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We are broadcast on Otago Access Radio every Monday, Wednesday and Friday afternoons at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. This is Marcus Turner, Spider in the Bath. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, with Mawera Karatai in Fakatani, and we've been joined from Kalmao Tarua Quarantine Island by Liv Taylor Peebles. That was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. Marty Wa. The sides are very slippery because the bath has just been cleaned. Everything is cold and wet and avocado green. There's a long lumpy loofah and some pumice in a dish And all I have to talk to is a purple plastic fish And here I am, is anyone about? I'm down beside the plug hole and I can't get out I've been here an hour and a half Can anybody help a little spider in the bath? There's no need to be frightened, I won't do you any harm. Just take me to the garden where it's nice and safe and warm. Then gently put me down and I'll run back home to my mother. One leg after the other, 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 after the other. Inside the plug hole and I can't get out I've been here an hour and a half Can anybody help a little spider in the bath? Can anybody help a little spider in the bath? Can't anybody help a little spider in the bath? I'm down here by the plug hole Anybody there? Hello? This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.